Welcome to the Buzzed in Baltimore podcast. I am your host, Jess Mayhew. I cover nightlife and spirits for Baltimore Magazine, and this podcast is an extension of that coverage. We talk about bars, drinks, and the people that bring them to you. Welcome to the Buzzed in Baltimore podcast. This is episode three. We are at Clavel in Remington, and we are with owner Lane Harlan, who also owns WC Harlan down the street, and bartenders Adam Marins and Trey ba- Jerry Barnhill. Um, thank you guys for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having Thanks us. For us. Um, and so I sort of wanted to, and we have children here, which it adds to it. Yeah. I'm into it. <laughs> it's a family establishment. <laughs> um, and I sort of just wanted to talk, to start a little bit about if you guys could talk about your backgrounds, um, kind of your, like, for it, everyone kind of that's in this industry sort of has an interesting backstory, I find, um, whether, like, how you sort of got into the nightlife scene, how you got into the service industry, um, and sort of what led you to work to work at Clavel. So, Lane, do you want to kind of start? Sure. Um, well, I guess... Uh I knew at a pretty young age that I liked spirits. Um, well, really, I mean, my first love, I think, was Andre, uh, which is like a $2, uh, not really a champagne, but, you know, like a wannabe champagne. Know it well. And so I just remember, like, going to places and having the bottle of Andre and feeling very opulent about it and feeling like, wow, I really like uh, just, like, these weird drinks. And, and then so Andre kind of brought me into... Um, drinking a little bit more sophisticated things. Uh, obviously, the service industry, at a very young age, I mean, I think 14, I was working in really crappy places. I worked at Denny's, um, wow. 24-hour joint. I worked at one of those uh, sushi, hibachi grill places. I invented Safi working there, which is a blend of hot sake and coffee. Um, yeah, it's sake, and it's, it's terrible for you. Um, but at the, at the time, it, it kept me going. It did the trick. <laughs> it did the trick. So, yeah, no, like, looking back, I can definitely say that there were early roots of liking to mix things and, and turn things <clears throat> upside down. But, um, yeah, in Baltimore City, my first job was at the Brass Elephant. Oh, wow. So I was uh, 17, and uh, they wouldn't let me serve, but they let me be a busser. And I just remember going downstairs. They had a, a cove, and it was just filled with amazing wine. And I went down there, and I made butter. Hmm. Um, but that, yeah, I mean, I always just worked in restaurants and, and bars and stuff like that. So. That's cool. I think everyone has, like, a good brass elephant story if you've lived here long <laughs> yeah, enough. Um, and I'm glad they're – I think they're going to be re- reopening it soon. Um, That's right, the elephant. Yeah, yeah. so – and Dre, how did you kind of get started in, in Baltimore? Are you from here or? I'm from New York uh, okay. originally, and my family is kind of like cousins and stuff. I've always had restaurants, and at a young age, I was always kind of running around those restaurants, and I think maybe developed a bit of a feel for it. You know, if you're surrounded by it or something like that, right, like right. oiling pizza tins and doing boxes, and at the time, you could still smoke in restaurants. So I'd be. Yeah. Smoking cigarettes and like, <laughs> watching dishes. Like and like the noise old. and the din and all and of yeah, that. And yeah, like just starting to at a young age like <clears throat> become aware of like that weird rhythm that happens when you're starting to like feel the flow of a night begin to take over and you know a duration goes by the wayside. And uh, came to Baltimore, you know, and then really it wasn't sure that I what I wanted to do. I was working at the health concern in Towson. Oh yeah, at, at the I, cash I, register. I, I know that store well. <laughs> for for a little bit, and, but I was also working backup house at this other place. You know, having never really served even at that point, people made me nervous at the time. And then a guy kind of 
his, his name is John Turpin, uh, kind of was like, you know what, you got to try this, man. Come into the front of the house. And one of my first gigs was actually transitioning straight into a manager, which you can only imagine the nightmare of a dude <laughs> trying. I'm like 19 years old trying to manage these vets, you know, who are working like a Lyric Opera House crowd, and they are just giving me the business the whole time. And where was this? Uh, this was a, a restaurant that was called Vicino's, or okay. Neo Vicino, and it turned into that sports bar called the uh, Terps, Terps, right next to UB. Nice transition. And, yeah, and that's when that I, coming. Yeah. Natural. Yeah. That's when I really got my first, like, taste of bartending. I was still muddling, like, mint and ice when I was trying to make a mojito. <laughs> and I, like, moved off to D.C. and kind of got my wits about me and came back here and was lucky enough to know Lane and Adam. Yeah. That's kind of it. Awesome. Adam, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I have very distinct memories of being at high school parties and somebody just kind of pulling out a bottle of terrible, terrible white rum or something. Mm. Just like, well, I'm not drinking that on its own, which I would eventually anyway, but (laughs) let's make this somewhat palatable. Uh, So kind of early kind of alignment with, all right, let's make something that tastes terrible on its own not taste so terrible. Uh, And then just kind of early service industry stuff. Uh, From New Haven, Connecticut, but came here for college. Uh, Really loved Baltimore. And then out of college and kind of end of college started doing, getting back into service industry jobs and was working at a restaurant. And right around the time of my birthday, an aunt and uncle sent me kind of as a gift the Savoy cocktail book. And I was just like, this works. And I struck up a conversation with the bar manager where I was working. Just, oh, hey, I got this book. Do you know it? And immediately he kind of said, oh, so you like this. Let's get you doing it on a professional level. How awesome that that was his of, attitude. Yeah, it was so really cool. nice. Yeah. Um, and definitely have just kind of kept going from there. Uh, I used to go into W.C. Harlan all the time and I, I think my first interaction with Lane was seeing this book of kind of Polish poetry and I was just like oh you like Polish poetry do you know what you're being of heard of uh, your standard Polish poetry <laughs> conversation yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was just long below yeah. yeah and uh, so we had a conversation I was like oh that that's really cool that I can be ordering cocktails and having a, this conversation here so then kind of when I was a couple of years later looking for work stopped by and said hey, here's my resume, and Lane immediately said, well, are you dropping off your resume for here at WC Harlan or the new place? It's like, there's a new place. What's that about? <laughs> and it was like, well, Mezcal. And it's like, I don't know much about that, but I know I like it. Uh, and so it kind of went from there. That's, yes. that's so funny. <laughs> uh, and how have you guys seen sort of the, the cocktail, craft cocktail scene change um, I mean, you opened Harlan when? It was... Uh, to, uh, early 2000, it was January 2013. And, like, was, do you think, like, at the time, Baltimore was sort of ready for a place like W.C. Harlan? Were you a little hesitant about no, it? No, no, they or? were ready. I feel like, yeah, I feel like the whole country is kind of on the same boat. Um, we already had co- we had cocktail bars, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, W.C. Harlan certainly was not the first. I think uh, what we did is we wanted to create something that was an alternative to other places, and certainly cocktail focused, but mostly um, just a place you could go without a TV, with uh, an ambiance that that we really enjoyed, which is really really dark. Um, and, <laughs> very uh, dark. Very yeah. difficult to take photographs, especially yes, if you're absolutely. in the media. But yeah. Yeah. Um, but but just 
something that was so, sort of old world um, and uh, just a different flavor, just our style. Yeah. You know? And um, I remember when we when we were renovating Harlan, we opened it. My house didn't have any mirrors in it or any artwork um, because we took all the antiques from my little Mount Vernon apartment <laughs> and we put it all over WC Harlan. So it really was just how we were living at the time. And we never set out to make a speakeasy or anything like that. It just, uh, that was just the style that we liked, that we were attracted to. And, um, and we, you know, it was like people, you go in the side door, it says enter, oh, it's a speakeasy, but no, the front door is facing residential places. So we were really just trying to be respectful right. um, of the neighbors. So it sort of became this sort of almost like kitsch thing for some people. Um, but at the end of the day, it was like, we had really amazing people. Um, it was just, we started with just a couple of my friends and uh, we worked really hard and we did what we wanted to do and nobody told us what to do. And I think uh, because we didn't have anybody dictating what to do, we got really, we could really be creative yeah. with what we were putting out and, and we kept things very simple. I think a lot of people weren't doing what we were doing in terms of the simplicity, um, more, more than cocktails or anything. It was like, we have two beers on draft. You could have light or dark. Right. Do you want light? Do you want dark? We have uh, a red wine, a white wine, and a sparkling wine. You're not going to see a label on anything. You're, it's going to be damn good, um, but we're going to pour it in a carafe, just very European style. Right. Um, because, you know, at the time in, in 2012, 2013, you'd go anywhere, and it would take you 10 minutes to decide on what, what beer to drink because there's just all this pizzazz on every sign Sensory there's like 50 beers on tap holy shit you yeah. know it's like yeah. really intense and i think that um i think even a little bit before that it was definitely uh, craft beer led a lot of people into uh, exploring spirits and things and before that it was wine mm -hmm. and um so cocktails were really natural ascension from the all that step. yeah yeah i think what's cool about harlan i mean there's a ton of things but because it was so simple, you can kind of forget about the outside world a little bit because you don't have to make all of these decisions. Yes. And I feel like it's a very, it's a de-stressing kind of place. Absolutely. Um, so it always transports me. Like, I feel like time doesn't really exist in there. <laughs> well, and it's about who you're with right? Um, in the time. And it's, it's not about, um, it's like, I feel like, as you say, time does stand still because you go into a place and it sort of is this like, gilded, lovely, nice lighting, warm, inviting, low stress. Like, right. You know, we're enveloping you in like really like super curated music that we know is going to put you just in that, like you feel like you're sort of in another place mm -hmm. when you walk in the door. And it's a big contrast to this neighborhood. I mean, Remington is extremely industrial and it's becoming a lot more uh, commercial and other and more industry food, beverage ways now. But at the time, it's just like you you go to this little, this it's almost like a dark corner with train tracks and huge trucks and just these huge buildings filled with machinery and you walk into WC Ireland and all of a sudden you're in another place. So right. it, was, it, it was a nice marriage being here in Remington. Totally, totally. And and how have um, you guys, since you've been bartending, how have you sort of seen the cocktail scene here change and, and develop? To now. I mean, I think one of the biggest things for me is, is I, I totally agree with Lane in terms of the idea of there, there has been a kind of cocktail scene in Baltimore for some time, um, and it, it's cool of the, the sense of that we're not necessarily doing anything like revolutionary or new, it's just bringing our passions to that uh, in a kind of honed in way. Uh, I mean, I, I constantly 
you pick up when you're bartending, you see kind of trends that are happening across the country, and it's always funny just seeing there have been times that I've seen trends kind of develop within Baltimore and then visiting friends wherever and kind of seeing it like, oh, it's made it here now. Yeah. And then vice versa of, of kind of friends bartending in Seattle or New York will be talking about something and then a couple months later it's like, oh, okay, everybody's into that spirit but here now. Comes here, yeah. Um, where it's, it's the cool thing of feeling like we're neither ahead of nor behind the curve. We're just kind of part of the cycle of trends that, that exist within bartending. That's um, really refreshing because I feel like a lot of times people talk about Baltimore being always behind the curve, um, but I, I don't ju- think no, it's I always true. No, not at all. You know, yeah. Yeah. And, and just being in a place where you you have low rent, well, for the most part, you know, um, but you can, you can really survive here without having to slave um, in an office building like crazy or commute really far. Um, it's really conducive to creative people. Yeah. And we have no shortage of creative people in the service industry. So that this is like, it's just really creamy beige right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. That's really funny. Um, Dre, did you have anything to add just from your experience? Oh, these guys said it way better than maybe yeah. I would ever. But yeah. yeah it, just, it seems like, again, like right now, most people are like, not trying to, hopefully, not trying to be like you know ahead of the curve or worrying about how far behind they are, but how is it they can best express their own vision of that thing? And that's that seems like a decision that's being made for everyone who's considering even opening up a place right now. It's like, well, are we gonna are we gonna sling? Or are we gonna do it kind of this way? There's like, it's almost like there's this more polarizing thing that happened where they're like, well, if we're gonna do it like this, then we need to set up like that. But if we're gonna do it like this, we need to set up like that. And just you that mean decision. sort of the 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 slinging versus like the creativity kind of thing or just finding a path and sort of going down that? Um, yeah, actually kind of like, cause there is a certain, there is a thing of just like kind of only doing volume that, that does happen, mm-hmm. but it's not to say that you can't be a really creative and awesome program and have a ton of volume. We, we do a ton of volume. It's, yeah. yeah. It's not sad. Um, and so ta- speaking about Clavel, I know that this place comes from like this sort of like deep love of Mexican culture for you Lane specifically and and you visited Oaxaca specifically a lot and um, if you could just talk about you know this feels like your baby in so many ways if you could just sort of talk about how you came up with this concept how this concept sort of evolved from idea to execution and and kind of where it all started like percolating in your brain yeah yeah actually um, it started from the uh, when we opened WC Harlan in 2013, I was, I mean, I think we had three bartenders and I was, I was there every single day and um, I was bartending and, and working really hard. It was really insane and I had basically carpal tunnel in this arm. I was sleeping on a blow up mattress on the floor every night and just like for the first time, you know, you learn how to run a business. You learn by being like living in that business and um, I really needed a vacation and at my then boyfriend, who's now my husband, uh, the second we had any money in our pockets, we said, fuck it, let's go to Oaxaca. Mm-hmm. So, pardon my French. Um, we, no, yeah, we, uh, we went to Oaxaca, and I, my mind was blown. And I, it always, uh, it was super romantic in my mind. Like, a, just, I had romanticized this place, but when you go there, it's just it's so real. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was just, just the mezcal, learning about mezcal was like, I was like hungry for that. Mm-hmm. And then I found that, and it just never stopped. It was just... The more you learn about it, the more you drink it, the more you just have this great appreciation of something that is beyond 
uh, just the visceral experience of consuming it. It's it's a culture. It's anthropological. It's hist- I mean, it's just geography. I, it's, it's everything. Yeah. You, you really uh, you really completely and utterly geek out on it. And so that I got that bug. Um, but what the way we opened Clavel is that. Uh, my sister's partner's brother, Carlos, who's the chef and my partner here, um, he actually is a fantastic cook. He was raised by his four aunts and his mother and, and his grandmother and grandfather who all have a, a long history, uh, five generations deep of cooking in uh, the, the state of Sinaloa in Mexico. And he had been working and I was talking to my sister one day and I said, man, like, it would be amazing to open a Mezcaleria, and you know, of course, she's like, "Well, you're crazy. What, what is that even? What's going on?" But she's like, "You know what? Would you ever do a restaurant? Because Carlos is really good at cooking." I'm like, "You know what? You're right." And so I just, I just like Car- mind blown. Instantly, I met with Carlos, yeah. and Carlos was like, "Yes, let's do this. I'm down. I, I want to do it. I can't wait." And so we partnered up, and it was, it was, a, it was the brainchild of Carlos and I coming together. And uh, that, yeah, that's where it began. That's so awesome. So just kind of one thing led to another. So Clavel has only been, we've, oh, we're coming up on our one year yeah. on June 5th I already. I can't believe it's been Jeez. less than, I can't believe it's been less than a year. Just yeah. Because you guys feel so established. I don't know. I mean, it's been a storm. It's yeah. Been an absolute, it's been a perfect storm. And I think uh, a lot of it is just, it's just the people. It's mm-hmm. the people that are part of Clavel and the way the way that we did it, the vetting process we had with the people involved, the way we only we only said, oh, only emotional, intelligent, only creative types, only people they're going to get that are going to be able to. T- it's like pioneering because with mezcal, you are such an educator yeah. in every sense, and 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 you have to be creative with it. And for us to get to the point where we are now, where people are ordering a ton of mezcal flights, they're ordering mezcal by the one ounce, by the two ounce, they're curious about it, they're asking about it. We went beyond the cocktail game and it was like really what our the vision was is to be simple and to say taste this mezcal you need nothing else right. and so it's been like a serious I don't know it's just been like a yeah. trip that, <laughs> did, I mean, you, did you guys, guys know that's, about mezcal like before you came it or? was for me it was something that I always really enjoyed it but I mean especially now and I still on the spectrum of knowing about mezcal I still don't know shit <laughs> uh, but like Kim when I started it was just Oh, I like that smoky thing, uh, and I know it's kind of like badass in my mind for some reason. Uh, hmm. And then starting to actually learn about it and tasting it, you get past that initial just like it's smoky and it's cool. Of you start getting into the depths of terroir and flavor, and it just reveals itself to you in such a massive way. Um, I mean, one of the biggest things for me in terms of bartending in general is I've never been a huge wine person. I, I really like wine uh, and I kind of get it, but I've also never been driven to really get deep into wine. Um, I kind of like the idea of going into a restaurant and just be like, the person that knows about wine, get me something I'll enjoy, right. I trust you. <laughs> right. um, I've always been more interested in kind of spirits and finding a spirit that has as much depth and variety, both in terms of its flavors, its profiles, but also its narrative, mm-hmm. uh, is huge for me. Where mezcal is something that is so based in the story uh, that it goes into every single bottle um, that it's it, it immediately kind of had its hooks in me. 
That's awesome. Um, and Dre, had you? Did you know much about mezcal or, or anything before working oh, man, here? Not, not like this, you know. Yeah. That really, and still, like Adam said, just kind of still learning like a ton, and uh, being surrounded with it constantly is a really great way to get to get to know it. But like, unlike Adam, I think my, my first love was wine, and, mm. and it was kind of cool to like. One of the things that I got to learn like about mezcal is just how much like the terroir and how much of an agricultural product that mezcal is and the agave from whence it came and and like getting to see that yeah I kind of learned most of it here. <laughs> and sure. I'm sure you right like you could take what you knew about wine and, and that kind of thing and apply it to mezcal. So what do you tell people like someone who comes in who has no idea what mezcal is has never tried it thinks it's the same thing as any old tequila like like how, how do you sort of intro them do you uh, have a spiel or does it depend i kind of like tailor it to people a little more sometimes i can tell that somebody is like asking to ask or they don't want the long version of it but usually start by saying well consider mezcal like the mother group the way that rye scotch and bourbon are types of whiskey tequila and you know bacanora these other other sorts of things are all types of mezcal beginning with there and then kind of like leading down the path of how many agaves that mezcal can be represented by, how many regions in, how many states rather in, in Mexico can be represented by. Um, if you go a little farther, I can go and say stuff like, you know, the bottling, the initial, or the minimum ABV that it can be, how many times it needs to be distilled, the difference between artisanal and so on and so forth. You can, you can really go down that way. I think, I feel like the biggest introductory sentence I use here is just, well, technically tequila is a type of mezcal. Uh, so often it's it's like, so mezcal smoky tequila, right? Um, which is fine. I mean, that's a fair thing to kind of assume. Uh, so kind of starting off with, well, actually tequila is you should just get that tattooed on your forehead. Yeah, I think probably. that's the next one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We've got some forearms. Right? Yeah. Next time we go to Oaxaca. Yeah. Uh, and so for people that don't realize it, I mean, Mezcal is incredibly versatile, and I'm sure that that's something that, that you've learned about on your, your travels down to Oaxaca. So how, how many times have you been there now in total? Uh, four. Okay, gotcha. Four. I'm going next week. Awesome. Again. Yeah. I'm not surprised. <laughs> um, and so if you could sort of just give us the, like, the short and sweet version of of maybe mezcal and, and how you've seen it produced and sure. and what makes it just this awesome spirit that you have made this passion project around. Yeah, I guess uh, we have to, it all comes down to the plants. Um, agave plants, millions and millions of years old. And uh, the usages of them are prehistoric. Essentially, uh, was the animals that kind of showed people how to use the plants in, um, in everyday life. This is before anybody was making the mezcal. People were drinking agua de miel, drinking pulque uh, fermented from the sap of the, the center of the agave. Gotcha. And just uh, and using agave in every single way. I mean, making clothes, making rope, uh, medicinal uses, uh, making fires, using quiotes to build houses. They're the, the what, what flowers and sprouts from the center of the agave is a quiote. And, it's really, really thick, and you can, it's kind of like strong like bamboo. You can use it for building. 
using the the tips of the the leaves as nails. nails. Yeah. Um, hmm. Just so I many, that so cool. many. That's <laughs> really. <laughs> it is so, How are they that strong? I mean, they're oh, oh wow! It's like going into the field. From them. It's like a stigmata. <laughs> we were walking through agave fields last oh, no. time. We all went to Oaxaca, and we're just like bleeding on the ankles. Yeah, no, they're very very sharp. Holy um, crap! I had no idea. But aside from making mezcal, there's a huge history there of, of using agave and people um, cultivating agave. The biggest exporters of mezcal and a lot of the, the culture surrounding mezcal is um, really apparent in Oaxaca. That's why a lot of people go to Oaxaca. Um, when you go there, uh, essentially you will visit a palenque. Palenque is uh, uh, synonymous with a distillery. Mm -hmm. um, but when you think of distillery, you sometimes think of a huge garage, a huge room with everything sanitized and right. stainless steel shining and people with the t-shirts and they have an embroidered logo and on them. And a tasting room. Yes, a tasting yeah. room and all the jazz. But when you go when you go out to these palenques, I'm telling you that they're often side of the road joints where you see smoke rising somewhere and you go and it's like maybe it's sometimes a gas station and then maybe they also sell mezcal or maybe it's a gift shop and they sell Polka and mezcal and obscene handicrafts like um, for tourists. <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, it, it is it is just such a tradition there, and um, essentially, it comes down to the plant. So, I digress. But if you have even in the same species, say you're dealing with a angustifolia, which is espadi, and most people you go to a liquor store, you look for mezcal, you're often going to see mezcal made from the subspecies espadi. If you have one espadine that is grown 50 yards from another one, a plant, and you harvest that plant, and you, you harvest the, the heart of it, which is called a piña, and you cook it in two different batches, and, and you ferment it in different batches, and you distill it, even though there are so many similarities, it's going to taste, taste different, it's going to be different because of that, the plant's life, where the plant was positioned, how much water it got, what the sunlight, the sunlight was like, mm -hmm. what was what was planted next to it, was there corn planted next to it? All these things are variables, and then of course you have the terroir being extended to the hands of the mezcalero themselves or the mezcaleras. Mm -hmm. We we know that women and men both make mezcal. Um, it's it's so it, it, there's so many variables. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's countless. Uh, uh, you know, the temperature and how long did did this batch ferment? Uh, was it super sunny? Was it a fast fermentation? Uh, how the mezcalero decided to taste the mezcal and say, okay, this is the body, this is what I'm, I'm going to take, and this is what I'm going to blend with some natural well water. Um, you just, you're not going to have the same uh, result. And maybe in a way, this is great for um, keeping mezcal small, keeping mm -hmm. people, uh, you know, prices rising as they should in, for Americans and the world buying mezcal to, to sort of keep that climate um, sustainable. sustainable. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, the thing is, aside from espadine, I always try to tell people you want to taste, try different espadine types side by side so that within the same subspecies you can taste so much variety. It's absolutely incredible. Um, a really cool uh, way to taste is this uh, Los Anzantes is a, a, a great company in, in Mexico and in the United States they're called Los Nopales. They have the project called Alipus and I'm sure you've seen it. Mm -hmm. Really beautiful labels and different colors but essentially they're different villages. And Del Maguey does the same um, where you can taste an, uh, an Espadin expression from somewhere and then somewhere else you taste it too and you can really see that these things are night and day because there are so many, uh, so many variables to, to the terroir of, of the people and the place. Um, but uh, essentially, 
Mezcal's amazing because it doesn't have to be just from Espanin. Mm -hmm. It can be from countless types of agave and yeah. species that have even created new species somehow and crossed or it, it, it gets very complicated. It's hard to say how many species there actually are because some people call one thing something in Zapotec or something, you know, it's you have all these villages and all these different species and um, it's really incredible. It's really amazing. Our, our menu is actually organized by species. Um, and we even have a category that is just like, screw it. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Who sure. knows? But taste this thing. And, yeah. and, um, and even a category for ensembles. And it's when you blend the agave. You can choose, you know, mezcalero goes out and they're harvesting whatever. I found some Karwinskis. I found some Marmorata. I have some Angustifolia. <laughs> let's all take it together and let's make a blend. And that's, that's an art form. It really is sounding more and more like wine, the more you talk right. about Absolutely, it. Yeah. but the yeah. thing yeah. is, yeah. grapes in the ground, like you can harvest grapes every single year. Right. These yeah. agaves are eight, 10 years in the That's ground, right. yeah. up to 30 or more. Yeah. Um, tepestates, and we've, we've, we love tepestate, we drink the shit out of it, and 30 years in the ground, these are massive plants, you're driving um, through the mountains of like San Juan del Rio, for example, you look down and you see a flower off a Quixote blooming in the distance, you know, holy crap, that's Tepestate because it's so huge, yeah. wow. so massive. Wow. Um, so it's, a, it's about the plant. Yeah. It's about the plant. Totally. And, and, and I know it was important for you to bring your staff or some of your staff at Clavel yes. to Oaxaca. So um, just maybe if you could talk a little bit about why you decided to do that. And then Dre and Adam, I would love to hear about your experiences down there. Um, I know there's some interesting stories. It was, it was important. Um, <laughs> It was a mission for me. It was a, it was like a, a goal for me from the start that I wanted to I wanted the bar team to go and have the experiences that I had had because, you know, there's not a ton of literature on mezcal and actually the book Holy Smoke is Mezcal by John McAvoy that helped us all. That was a training tool for everybody. But aside from reading something or listening to me talk talk talk, doing tastings tastings, it's like you don't know unless you have something in your memory. And I wanted them to have experiences. I wanted them to speak to people from actual memories and feel like. That they they could carve their own way of, of explaining mezcal or sharing their experiences. It wasn't just coming from a book or from uh, you know meat or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it was actually coming from them going and having that relationship and touching the soil and eating the roasted agave, which we did so much. It was too, too much. much. Too, too <laughs> much. Too much. You'll never forget the flavor of freshly roasted piñas. But you know, seeing how they make ensembles, looking at clay distillation, seeing how incredibly small these batches are, how these these clay stills are just made from scratch and they're just sitting there 70 liters at a time, sometimes less. Bagasso packed everywhere just to keep the still together and these things break. Um, seeing the food, seeing the people, talking to the people, smelling the fermentation, touching the fermentation. Uh, I mean, they just, they had to go. I mean, we actually yeah. we took some really great photos mm -hmm. of them hold, holding different types of just freshly roasted uh, agave species and just holding machetes and seeing, <laughs> you know, just seeing how um, how things are, are very different from the, the bourbon trail, for example. Yeah, you know? yeah, totally. Um, so what did, what was kind of some of your favorite experiences when you were down there? It was really kind of that, like I really wanted to like feel the dirt, smell the air and kind of be able to bring that back with me. Um, I think my what, I mean, there, there's a, there a ton of them, but it was really like flying in the first night and touching down and being in Mexico for roughly, or in Oaxaca rather, for roughly like an hour and 10 minutes and then already being en route to get a tattoo. <laughs> 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 Someone 
who greets me with a plastic jug full of 30-year tepestate. Yeah. Oh and he's God. like, you coming? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be amazing. Is that the one on your chest that yes, you showed me before? Right so how did that, how did the greeting you with Espatate lead to the tattoo? How did? I saw a big guy with a bunch of tattoos, and he's like, are you with Lane? I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, you can put your stuff down upstairs and go chill out, or you can come with me. And I was like, well, what are you doing? He's like, I'm going to get a tattoo. You want one? And I was like, yeah. So I did. <laughs> I wow. was like, well, uh, I just kind of yeah. set the pace. Well, you wanted yeah. to create a memory, right? Yeah. So you can't really oh, forget well, they that. Both got oh, yeah. So you got one too, Adam? I did too. So Jay was there. A little, I mean, I, our coworker Viv and I traveled together, and we both had, I think, the shortest amount of time in Oaxaca. Uh, just two days, basically. Got in late Monday, like 8.30 Monday night. Uh, left early, early, early Thursday morning. So packed it in pretty, pretty yeah. intensely. Uh, and I showed up to where we were staying. Immediately greeted by Lane, yelling, they're here! And hugging both of us, handing us mezcal, and being like, all right, well, where's Dre? She's like, oh, well, Dre's getting this tattoo. Uh, it's like, all right, cool. Uh, can I also do that? Uh, and kind of goes, and so the, the first full day we have, uh, we spend the entire time traveling around, going to Palenque's, and even when you are going in a very curated, and respectful, kind of educational way uh, to visit Palenque's. You're going to get drunk. Uh, it's it's <laughs> business drunk, certainly. Uh, business drunk. Is, I need to start using that more. <laughs> you, I mean, there's no way in hell you're spitting this stuff out. Right. Uh, and you're going to eight to ten different Palenque's and trying at every one, at least three mezcals, you're gonna get a bit drunk. So yeah. after this full day of driving around the desert and the mountains, trying all these incredible mezcals, we get back to the house, it's like 7.30, everybody pretty much collapses, <laughs> and I'm laying there, and TJ, our friend that is this heavily, heavily tattooed guy, uh, comes up and he's like, hey Adam, you still down for the tattoo? It's like, yes, yes. <laughs> and he is like, all right, well, I uh, texted Lakra, who's this amazing tattoo artist there. Uh, he's going to hit us up in a couple minutes, so let's go to the bar, have a beer, and then we'll walk over to his house. Uh, You're like, more booze, yay. Yeah, it was the adrenaline <laughs> and the beer got me ready, I think. And we show up at Lakra's house. He opens the door and walks us through his courtyard where his kids are playing, getting ready for bed. We go up to his studio, he puts on this amazing kind of original, like 60s Oaxacan kind of mambo record, hands me a Tecate, and was like, you ready? <laughs> yes I am. And we went into it. Uh, and he, he tattooed a bat head on my knee, uh, which I, I mean is incredible, it's super gnarly looking. Uh, has this very kind of monster movie aesthetic, which I really like. But as we're doing it, I really wanted the tattoo to be of the place. And we got into this discussion of how I've, I've loved kind of bats just as an image uh, in general for most of my life. Uh, and then, but that particularly in Oaxaca, bats have a very important relationship with the agave of they eat some of the agave's biggest predators and they kind of serve as these 
protectors of this plant wow. and so are very of the place and it felt nice I mean I think it, it was a lot of this kind of after the fact of just I really like bats I want a bat tattoo I'm getting a tattoo and then it just uh, so happens and then afterwards it's just like well no that that works and having yeah. a little Oaxacan protector on my knee is something that I'm yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Did you guys about. like choose your design, or did he choose it for you, or was it? It was a conversation. It was very much kind of. This is a dude who is an art. I mean, he has work in the MoMA's archives. He is an artist, uh, and most of my other tattoos has been. I want this image specifically. I'm going to go to a friend or go mm-hmm. to the guys I go to and get it done. This was. I want your take on this. I want a bat. Other than that, please, please, please do what you do. Leave it up to you, yeah. yeah. And what did you get, Trey? Uh, I got the horns and fire of the mighty pagan deity Baphomet. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Pretty Naturally. unrelated to Oaxaca, but done but in badass this style. all the same. <laughs> yeah. Um, and besides the tattoos, what did you guys feel like you were brought back from that experience down there that you were able to sort of um, I mean, translate to your customers. Bunch of mess. <laughs> yeah, well, besides besides the bottles of- that I am already worried about how much is missing, but um, <laughs> I, the biggest thing for me on the trip was, uh, you know, Lane prepped us so well in opening um, that so much of the kind of facts of production it wasn't new information being there. There was not a ton that, in terms of just details of the process, that I learned in Oaxaca. It, it was kind of, that was information I knew. What you learn being there and what you take is the actual feeling of it. Um, where there is such a difference of knowing, okay, I know how agave is roasted, I know it's mashed, I know like this is the kind of process of how bagasso is used. And actually standing there and inhaling kind of the mixture of smoke and the sugars roasted and the fermentation going on and feeling the smoke kind of covering you and hearing the air. I mean, there is is nothing that you can read or be taught, no matter how good the text or the teacher. There is nothing that can teach you what it is like to stand in a field of agaves that have already cut into your body (laughs) and just feeling your feet sink into this dirt that is the same fine quality of sand and just feeling silence and the air rolling down mountains as you sip this thing that has been made from the land that you're existing in at that moment. It's holy shit, you should write some prose about this. But <laughs> 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 so it's like it's like the whole like textbook versus field trip kind of thing, right? right? Yeah. Like you can't experience something the same way. Both um, extraordinarily valuable, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. getting to watch Adam at the end of that a grow of agaves that was, feeling that, that was an important walk for me. And bringing those <laughs> memories back. Yeah. Really, yeah. That's the thing. And do you feel like 
you're able to sort of um, translate that to like the the customer and the guest, like having those stories and, and those memories. For sure, yeah. we yeah. we dig being expressive about. Yeah, I think yeah, this kind it's of in stuff. you, so yeah. people see it through your eyes like yeah. when you explain yeah. and you. If someone wants something a little bit, you know, whatever, not, maybe not in the front row of the mezcals, they want a little something on the side, and you're like, oh, you want to get crazy? Let's get crazy <laughs> right <laughs> now. Really? You want to do And it's like all of a sudden really great. It's just it like is go on a journey things, with someone. Right? Yeah. Like, because it, at that point, in a way, it's not really selling as much as it is being like, I get to share a little Sharing. bit of like yeah. this lived excitement that I've had yeah. for something that was actually really dear to me and making those memories with these guys. You know? Totally. Yeah. Favorite well, question behind the bar is how weird do you want to? and it's like it's like that passion's contagious so if you guys are passionate about it from like an authentic place then you know everyone that you serve will be also which is really cool um so speaking of so we the Cinco de Mayo is coming up which is sort of why I wanted to revolve um this podcast around Mezcal and um, I wanted to know sort of what you guys had had planned for the holiday when we opened we, we were shooting for Cinco de Mayo because we just we just wanted to have just a Big party, yeah. <laughs> Do it up. Don't care. Get cheesy. Get crazy. Um, but you know, one thing led to another. We ended up opening June fifth. So this year, I think we're gonna. Now we have two parties in two months, back to back. Carlos is. We're gonna be doing chicharrones, carnitas. We're gonna have pinatas. We're gonna hang flags everywhere. We're just gonna get. We're just gonna get cheesy, just crazy. Blow out. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Yeah. Why not? You know, we're like a mezcaleria here in the United States. And, Nobody really can talk about the the Mexicans beating the French. You know, it's like in the American's mind, I don't think that it really has a big place other than you go to the Mexican restaurant and you get, you know. Get a Corona. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. Give you your Coronas. Um, but we're, we're just going to do it up, be playing loud band of music. It's just going to be like a big birthday party, like That's a big celebration. Awesome. Yeah. So actually on the night of Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo. Yeah, I think it's a Thursday. It's a Thursday. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So do people need tickets or can no. they just come as come sure. as Just show up. Bring <laughs> the family, bring everybody, show up. We'll have everything outside. We'll be grilling outside. Just gonna have, yeah. yeah. You guys have such like cool outside, like the outside seating and the vibe. I mean, it's like you said, it's Remington's industrial. It's not like there's quite a view, but I really like the vibe of sitting out there. And I don't know if people yeah. realize that there's outdoor seating, but it's really awesome. Um, and do you guys have any other kind of events coming up or exciting things that you wanted to talk about? Um, I know your your food menu doesn't change too, too much. I know your cocktail menu is probably yeah, more rotating we, we thing. just did the, um, we just dropped the spring menu. Uh, we've got, I think, seven <laughs> new cocktails we're very proud of. Oh, awesome. And when we create the cocktail menus, there's a lot of meetings that occur ahead of time because everything's really collective. Mm-hmm. Uh, we function very collectively. It's like we make a, co- you know, we have all, all our ideas, we pull them together, and, and it kind of seems like we're all on the same page in terms of what direction we want to go to with go forward with in the season and um and then we workshop the drinks and we we take each other's feedback and we create things together i mean it's extremely collective here um but yeah the the new cocktail menu of the spring is fantastic we just started doing brunch so that's a new thing right, uh, we do a sunday brunch from 10 a.m to 2 30 awesome. and that's a completely different menu i mean oh, okay completely different it's all breakfast style very traditional whoever's rancheros chili killes Stuff like I that. need to so come in for brunch. Too. It's like it's a sin that I haven't been in yet. <laughs> it is indeed a sin. <laughs> yeah. So come maybe this weekend. Yeah. yeah. Those, those are like all of my favorite things. Um, and I just I wanted to ask too. I mean, you you opened WC Harlan. You're, you have Clavel now. Are you hoping to 
open a new concept? Are you th even thinking about that? Or are you really just concentrating on these two places? Right now, I feel like I'm farming my farms. Yeah. And um, I'm really happy to be doing that and learning a lot myself. And uh, yeah, no, I have nothing, nothing right now that to speak of just besides uh, yeah. cultivating what we have here. And, and it's, a, it's a living and breathing thing. I mean, it's not like... I, feel, I don't feel like, you know, oh, we made this thing and, like, let's let now it be. Now we're done. Like, no, actually, um, <laughs> it, it keeps moving and changing. And, right. So, yeah. That's awesome. Um, and it's, I think it's really cool, too, because, I mean, Remington, it is sort of one of those up-and-coming neighborhoods, and, and I think that, that your two establishments have, with, with other places around here for sure, have, have helped it get on the map a little bit for people that weren't aware, you know, that the auto work been here for as long as it's been Absolutely. here or, or whatever. Um, so there must be that sense of like neighborhood pride for you that you didn't want to open Clavel, you know, in, in Station North or in Mount Vernon or um, that you just wanted to be right up the street. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, th I think we feel even, I mean, with Clavel even more so that we're a huge part of the community. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. Must be nice. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so I was hoping maybe we could do, it's up to you guys, maybe like a mess flight or an and or cocktail um, maybe one of the new spring cocktails um, I thought what was really interesting was when you were talking about how you, even if it's if have the same subspecies how you can taste the differences we can do an us maybe we, we could do that and then a cocktail from one of you guys Make a parfait yeah is that a new spring cocktail or is it, okay let's try let's try one of those so we're gonna do a, a tasting of espadine. Okay. So this is the species in Gustafolia, and as we were talking about terroir before, you can have the same type of agave, but it's going to be completely different. And we have a few spins on it as well here, but we're gonna start with Alipos San Juan, um, Santa Ana, I'm sorry, Santa Ana del Rio. This is a, a huge favorite, um, <laughs> because in the line uh, of all the, are you wanna yeah. say same? In the line of all of our um, Alipos, Mezcals. This is one we find to be incredibly floral, uh, wow. which is always a really nice surprise when going. Especially to on the, the aftertaste or the breath out. I don't know if that's it's not the technical term, but right, it's really yeah. nice. Here, I mean, so much over. of the tasting with mezcal is about the breath of yeah. uh, that nasal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I figured there's a technical right. term besides just exhaling. <laughs> yeah, definitely the floral uh, notes I pick honeysuckle up. Honeysuckle sure. would have been a mint. So when making a cocktail with that kind of mezcal, I mean, I know it's just as great to drink on its own, but what kind of flavors would you sort of want to pair with that? the floral qualities of this. Remember? Um, oh, yeah, when we did the Manila Galleon. Manila Galleon, yeah. What right. was in that one? Uh, we did, uh, let's see. Matcha. Matcha tea. Coconut milk. Coconut milk. Uh, we did lavender. Lavender, mm -hmm. yeah. And... Uh, Wow, this was like, oh, this, this is, is like the beginning. It's like a little sipping wine. a cloud. Yeah, yeah sipping it was cloud. That sounds lovely. <laughs> I think it was unsweetened coconut milk, mm -hmm. lavender, matcha. And it was, uh, it was a matcha. matcha honey. Like very matcha honey. airy and bright. Yeah, a little lavender on top. It was extremely floral. and um, But I find that this one, just sipping on its own, it's, it's got so much so much of a, a, a literal bouquet on mm -hmm. it that, um, that, yeah, it's kind of a... People just get a little thrown off by because they're like, "Oh wow, that's that's so lovely." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, this one's pretty lovely. And sometimes mezcal doesn't always have that that floral note. I would think it's right. that that loveliness isn't always there. So going so. going from this, uh, 
we're going to taste. This is an espadine from Felix Angelis in Santa Catarina Minas. And he is doing uh, clay distillation. Okay. He's uh, mashing everything by hand. And, um, and normally it's distilled not in clay, it's distilled in... Usually it's in copper. In copper, um, okay. Usually, but I mean, a lot of people do it in clay. Some people do it in, um, I mean, ceramic, wood. I mean, it gets really kind of exotic. Clay's tricky. So many columns you have to still. break it down after a couple of distillations. So it's just more of challenging of a craft, I would think, right? I think it's a little more labor intensive. Ab oh, absolutely. The guys in the absolutely, because what you can do is you can you can crush the the, the baked agave hearts. That has with that like gives a me wheel. like a little almost chartreuse situation or like a herbal. Yeah, like an herbal thing. Um, does the clay oh. affect the flavor profile <laughs> so, at all? Oh yeah. Okay. I mean, really. I mean, almost a for me, it's it's often a mouthfeel mm -hmm. and a smell. I can often smell like. The clay, like almost like this um, earthy stone, mm -hmm. like dusky smell. But then, that when you taste it, you really get—it's just like almost like super round, rounded off. Um, but and there's but there's grit. Yeah. There's there's grit there. We loved this espadine right away. So it's like a delightful thing. You think sometimes with mezcal, it seems like oh everyone does an espadine because they're very abundant. But like this. Socks. It's also quite fruity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it has so the herbal notes and the fruity notes. What have you made a cocktail with this one before? Mm. No, this, this one this is, is always just, just, just sipping. Just yeah. sipping. It's I mean um, it's nice enough too. It almost feels like orange. A lot of orange. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I get I mean, a lot it's, of like the game and funk from the palenque. Oh yeah. Those majorly. Hmm. I mean, as far as kind of in terms of if we were to make cocktails with it, which it wouldn't because this is one of the precious things we brought back from Oaxaca, but this <laughs> flavor-wise would be perfect in the Porfine La Paz, this cocktail, uh, it, it, in terms of those deep, kind of the kind of very, very dank kind of celery flavors, uh, and then that bright fruit on the finish is kind of exactly what awesome. we want for a cocktail like that. I've only heard dank as an adjective for a certain kind of thing, so never win. Yeah, no, <laughs> we use dank a lot in the mezcal world. Um, but this, I think this one's really special because the, the piñas, they weren't crushed by a tona, which is a stone wheel. Okay. Um, they were crushed by hand, and when, when you do that, you get a lot more sugar going into the fermentation, and I think it really affects the, the outcome. I mean, every step is, like we discussed, so incredibly variable, but for this, I, I, can, I can taste the sweetness. There's like a little citrus almost. Like Absolutely. It, mm -hmm. I feel like the flavor's changing even, I sipped it like a yep. minute ago. If someone didn't know we were tasting mezcals, they might think that you tasted a cocktail. Yeah, you know, it, it has all those layers to it. That's kind of incredible. So yeah, that's an uncertified one that we brought back just for um, funsies. Yeah. Uh, the next one we're gonna do uh, is, is Del Maguey. Uh, Del Maguey, we're gonna do the pachuga because the pachuga at base is an espadine that has been distilled in clay and um, also in San Santa Catarina Mina. So these both are distilled in clay and from the same place, essentially. But uh, this is a pechuga. So pechuga translates to breast in Spanish, but it doesn't, it's really representative of a category. It's really a style, I would say, okay. of mezcal. Pechuga is when mezcal generally is distilled two times uh, by rule, but, and sometimes one time actually. But for this, uh, you do a third distillation and in the still, you put uh, fruits and, and spices, sometimes grains, uh, just local 
bounty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you hang a, uh, a chicken breast or a turkey breast, or I've even <laughs> heard of an octopus or a rabbit, uh, just sort of hang it in the top of the still so that as the, the, the mezcal is cooking, the vapors are gonna rise through the breast of this animal. And uh, sometimes people even just do it with the fruit, and they don't, you know. And, and people call that the ve- the vegan pachuca. <laughs> um, but and what's that? This, what does that do? So it? well, the the just uh, the reason that uh, people do these pachugas is actually really traditional. It's like celebratory. So people generally uh, will infuse the the mezcal and the still when there is a celebration, uh, quinceanera. Somebody's getting married. Somebody died. Mm. Um, it's sort of a uh, like a ceremonial. A, it's a ceremonial thing. Yeah. Um, and why do they hang the breast of the still? Well, no one can really say exactly why, but people people think that because it's sort of like an offering, mm. and it's a, it's a traditional. My thing. favorite theory about pachuga that I've read has been that it uh, the breast in particular is actually kind of a holdover or uh, kind of reference to Aztec sacrifice mm-hmm. of what it in that like. idea of offering that there has to be kind of the one quote I read was just like, there has to be some blood, um, which is just, uh, it's, it's so fitting for, <laughs> I mean, it's so perfect for Mezcal. Uh, the idea of, I mean, I'm looking at the bottle here yeah. and it has this, this <laughs> saying that's very, very popular of, for all bad mezcal and for all good mezcal. Uh, and I think that's certainly represented in the pachuga. The celebration of you have the bounty as Lane put uh, and the, the fruit, the sweetness with kind of some sacrifice of, of the kind of life and the death all together. And it's- And that balance. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's awesome. It has a, like a bite to it almost. I don't know if that's the right term. It yeah, just- it shows off. It's like it's 49% hot. or something. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, even if you go back and you look at um, sort of Aztec sacrificial traditions, people were bloodletting with the spindles of agave. Mm-hmm. They were bloodletting with stingray spines and with, you know, it's wow. like, there's a lot of uh, tradition that, that goes into this. Well, a lot of that like ancient Latin, just art and culture was all about sacrifice and uh, the, the ceremonial offerings and that kind of thing. So it makes perfect sense. Um, you guys probably unintentionally sacrificed when you were going through that sharp agave and blood. <laughs> yeah, blood but letting. you know, so willingly. Yeah, it's um, for a good cause. I mean, you can you can smell on here a lot of cinnamon. Mm-hmm. It's super tropical. It's, I mean, it's like it just reminds me of like a pineapple agua fresca, spiked with you know cinnamon, anise, and the texture of it. There's some like there's a lot, I feel like there's like a lot of acidity, wow. or it would go well with some, some acid. It's yeah. Really nice. Intense. <laughs> um, and I know you guys just came out with your new spring menu of cocktails, um, and this is one. So if you guys want to talk a little bit about um, this cocktail that you made and what's in it and, and how you kind of developed it. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a, a transition we had for a very long time on the menu, a cocktail called the Morenita, which uh, was one of the first cocktails Lane kind of showed us and we kind of had as, as, a, as a menu go-to. Um, which was kind of a house mezcal, old-fashioned or Manhattan-style cocktail of uh, kind of sweet, a little bit of uh, kind of bitters and mezcal, essentially. Um, and this, we wanted to have something that sticks by those guidelines, uh, but is for hot weather, where you can have a spirit-forward, 
very slow sipping drink that is still really bright and refreshing. Um, and I, I think we did a pretty good job. Yeah, yeah. you achieved that really well because you're not masking the spirit at all, but it still like leaves you feeling like, like you said, refreshed. Um, but not in the case where you don't taste any alcohol and then you just feel like you're drinking juice, right. which is never good. <laughs> Um, well, really yeah, nice. so the before when we had the, the Mornita, and this took the Mornita's place for spring, the Mornita was, it was Los Aquales Reposado, mm-hmm. and then we did our house Siete Azahoras bitters, or like Seven Blossoms bitters, and we were blowtorching Pilancio sugar, which is a, a Mexican sugar, um, and they come in these, these cones, and they're these brown cones, and we were just um, taking a knife and we were shaving off uh, the cones onto a spoon, and we were blowtorching it and caramelizing it with a little Pedro Jimenez. And um, that was the Moranita. And for spring, we thought, let's go lighter, let's go a little more citrus, but let, let's keep the mezcal at the center. And so um, we used, uh, this is called Porfin La Paz, which means peace at last. Um, essentially, we used uh, Alipus San Juan del Rio, which is more of the masculine of, of yeah, the Alipus sure. line. It's, it's, it's smoky, it's, it's oily, yeah, it's absolutely. It's bigger and um, we wanted to keep, we wanted to use the pilancio, but this time we decided let's not torch it, let's keep it light. So they're shaving off the pilancio, putting the mezcal, um, using a little bit of uh, uh, Nardini Mandorla Grappa, it's like a bitter almond grappa, okay. just a, a kiss of that, um, and some grapefruit peel, and just sort of stirring for a very long time to get the pilancio to incorporate into the cocktail. And but it's mostly it's it's a big dose of the Alipus San Juan del Rio. Yeah. Yeah. A little mint on top. Just to give a little more freshness. It's almost like a Paloma on like major steroids or something. Like it's very yeah. like it's you definitely get that like strength and that smoky that masculine feel from the mezcal, but the the almond and the grapefruit and all of that is really nice and, and bright and refreshing. Yeah. So all the sharp edges of the grapefruit, just only the kind of bitter and bright and cutting out the sweetness, but then adding the almond. Uh, and a little bitter, a little uh, Amargo Chucho bitter in there, which is um, just like nice for that one. People use it on Pisco Sours traditionally, okay. but we thought it, it played really well in this cocktail. This is like a perfectly balanced drink. It's pretty amazing. Um, thank you guys. I really appreciate it. I appreciate, you know, Mezcal at noon. I can't, <laughs> I can't argue with that. Um, and everyone needs to check out um, the new spring menu, come for brunch, come to Cinco de Mayo, come for the one year anniversary. Um, they've got so many exciting things going on. So cheers. Thank Thanks. you so much. Thank you. Jess. Thanks so much for listening to episode three of Buzzed in Baltimore. If you want to find out more about Clavel, you can visit them on Instagram at bar underscore Clavel. And if you want to keep up with this podcast, you can follow me at Buzzed and Be More on Twitter and Instagram. Next month, we will be exploring uh, one of Maryland's best distilleries and hopefully getting some samples along the way. Cheers.